you have your Bibles, would you turn to me the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. In the New Testament, all the T's are together. So if you find Timothy or Titus, just turn forward a little bit and you're there, all right? 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in uh, chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 2 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, today I pray that you would fill us with gratitude. I pray as we think about Jesus we would be filled with thankfulness. I pray as we think about each other and the memories that we have with one another and the relationships that we have with one another, or maybe, maybe the relationships we're just beginning to form with one another, I pray that you would fill us with thankfulness. When we think about the people that have come to faith in Christ, God, I pray that you would fill us with thankfulness. When we think about the unity of the body of Christ here at Iron City, I pray that you would fill us with thankfulness. I pray, Father, as we consider what you might do in the future, that, God, you might even be willing to use a little old place like us and little old people like us to do great and glorious work in your name. I pray that you would fill us with thankfulness. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of gratitude in the hearts of your people, that their hearts would be turned more and more and more toward you, and that, Father, you would just continue to fan the flame that you have ignited among us here at Iron City. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in her 136 years... Iron City has had 42 pastors. 36 of those 42 served here for four years or less for, for varying reasons. There used to be something called an annual call. And so you kind of voted on the preacher every year. And he voted on you every year whether or not he wanted to come back. So there's a lot of contributing factors. Until 2021, the longest serving pastor that we had had in our church's history had been seven years. And that had been uh, one pastor. He was my pastor here when, when I grew up. Someone I love very dearly. And I tell you all of that as we step into our second decade together, that we're in uncharted waters here. We're in uncharted waters. You don't know how to have a pastor this long. And I don't know how to pastor a church for this long. We're equally naive, right? But it's beautiful. We've kind of sailed off the map of what we expect and what we know. I, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, used to, every time I would go on vacation, somebody would come and say, what church did you preach in view of call of this weekend, you know? Finally, I think I've convinced you people that I'm not leaving. But that means we've got to have a new map, right? 
That means we've got to have a new map. We've got to have a new playbook. We've gotten to the end of what we know. I thought you guys would enjoy this. I have the original bulletin from my first Sunday. That's like my only nice shirt at the time. You know, and Megan, didn't we look rested? I mean, just one kid, and she didn't even talk yet. I mean, we were so rested, and that guy needs a beard. I'm just telling you, he needs a beard. But we came, we came 13 years ago, and I really had this burden in my heart. I was convinced that what Iron City needed was a generational pastor. For the first time in her history, a pastor that would take the baton of the gospel from one generation and then steward it and hand it over to the next generation. Well, as milestones are apt to do, Megan and I have been in a season of reflection over the past six months. And we've prayed and we've sought the Lord. Because, you know, some, my, my, the, the pastor was my mentor. He was here. He did my installation. He said, you know, a preacher comes with two suitcases all the time. One, he's intend, he unpacks and he intends to stay for, forever. The other one is packed to go wherever the Lord would send at a moment's notice. And so Megan and I have prayed, God, is this really where you would have us to be? Is this where you want us to stay for the long haul? Lord, is this just comfortable? Is this just easy? Is this just natural? Is this just where we love? Lord, we want to be like, jo- like the fish and the worm and the plant and the wind in Jonah. God, just you tell us to go and we go. And the Lord, over that six-month period, has just confirmed time and again that we're still supposed to be right here. This is where we want to be. This is where we feel called to be. And we have doubled down on the dream that we have, that we believe is a beautiful ambition to pastor a single congregation for an entire lifetime. To pastor a single congregation for an entire lifetime. That means, that means we've got a lot to figure out. That means we're going to need a lot of help, we're going to need a lot of prayers, we're going to need a lot of grace, we're going to need favor with each other, we're going to have to still like each other. I hope that we still like each other, I still like y'all, just so you know. But, but it means that, that we're going to need the sustaining grace of God to move us forward so that the work advances and doesn't grow stale. So that we don't fall into a rut of what we do every week just because we do it every week, but that we would press on with kingdom ambition as we, as we make it our ambition to stay together. And I hope, and I'm going to talk even more about this week, to, to pray that, that we would just grow old together as a congregation, that we, as we make it our ambition to stay together, that we would at the same time make it our ambition to advance the causes of the kingdom to the ends of the earth and to the edges of the Chiha Valley so that the gospel permeates throughout here. And so as we turn the corner to the next decade, I want us to spend some time looking at what that map might look like. But before we do that, I want to spend this week, and I really want to look back, because you know, so often we wait until we say goodbye to say how we really feel about each other, don't we? We wait until it's at the end, or until someone's moving off, or until someone's passing on, or until the pastor is leaving the church to say, hey, this is actually how I, how I feel about you. And by that point, you, you depart, and you're not able to fully enjoy the goodness of that relationship that is to offer. And so as, this sounds strange, and I, and I hope it's not too weird for you. I thought, what would I want to say to you if it was my last Sunday? What would I want you to know? And so this morning, I'm going to hijack the words of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, and I'm going to make those my words. Those words that he spoke so kindly and fondly of the church at Thessalonica, they summarize exactly how I feel about what 
God has done here and among us, how I feel toward you and my, my, my heart toward you. And I want us to look back and see the foundation that God has laid here that we might move forward. And Paul here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, he expresses great thankfulness. In fact, he spends basically the first three chapters of the letter to the church at Thessalonica expressing gratitude and thanks and, and, and joy over the work that God has done there in Thessalonica. And he has two main anchor points here in these first uh, few verses, first ten verses, that really anchor down his gratitude. And those, those are going to be my anchor points for you. So I'm actually going to phrase this in the second person. That this isn't Paul talking to Thessalonica, this is me talking to you. That the first reason I'm thankful for you is that you are a demonstration of God's power. You, Iron City, are a demonstration of God's power. You know, we live in a time in which Miracles are easily dismissed and often not believed. We, we often think, maybe even we're guilty ourselves of believing that, that the word miracle is something that is used by unsophisticated, unscientific people to describe phenomena that they can't describe otherwise. And so we would say, no, for every miracle there's some kind of explanation, there's some kind of scientific reasoning that's behind it, and we're tempted not to believe them at all. Yet Paul, here in 1 Thessalonians uses the word power as he describes, uh, there in verse 5, as he describes the local church there in Thessalonica. And the word that Paul uses there for power is the exact same word that is used throughout the Gospels to describe the miracles that Jesus performs to verify his deity and to confirm him as the Messiah from the prophets. And what's unique here, though, is that Paul is not talking about feeding the 5,000, and Paul is not talking about walking on water or healing lepers or the dead walking or the blind hearing or the blind seeing and the deaf hearing. He's talking about regular old folks like us. He's talking to a local church, a gathering of believers there in Thessalonica who aren't perfect and have their issues. He's looking to them, and he's saying, you are a demonstration of the power of God. You. Not just the sea splitting, not just the blind hearing, not just the deaf, uh, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and the, the dead. You living every day, day in, day out, taking care of your kids and going to work and coming. You are a demonstration of the power of God. See, that's one of the reasons that we're supposed to gather together. That's one of the reasons that, that Facebook Live just won't do to fully empower the New Testament believer in Christ. That we are meant to come together as the body as a weekly reminder that God is still in the miracle business. We are meant to come together every single week to still recognize that even in the lives of ordinary moms and ordinary dads and grandmoms and granddads and teenagers and kids, that God is still in the work of intervening in their life with divine and supernatural power to bring about a transformation that is nothing short of miraculous. You see, if you love God... If you've been convicted of your sins and turned from your sin toward the Lord, if you desire to, to honor God with your life, the Bible says that there are none that are good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. And so if in your heart you feel a, a captivation with the glory of God, you are nothing less than a God-wrought miracle yourself. 
And when we gather together, hundreds of us under one roof, we are gathering together as hundreds of miracles of the living God, demonstrating and reminding one another that God is still at work in this generation, that God is still in the work of changing people, of transforming people, of forgiving sinners, of bringing hope to the hopeless, of bringing bringing rest to the restless, that God is still at work even in and among us. And so Paul is looking at the church of Thessalonica and he's saying, you are a demonstration of God's power. And I'm looking at you and I'm saying, you are a demonstration of God's power. See, in you I've seen God's power exerted. You know, we ought to stop here and ask, we're we're, we're talking a lot about what God has done. And we ought to stop for just a second and ask, how can we tell the difference between something that God has done and something men are pretending that God has done? We ought to ask that question. You you see, there is a way to imitate a work of God. That you can emotionally manipulate people so that they get into quite a rouse and it can imitate a work of God and yet fizzle out very quickly. You you can have people that work very hard because they are compelled to do so because they've been shamed and, and guilted into doing it. And it may look like there's good fruit, like they're working really hard or giving really faithfully. But it's an imitation and it'll burn out quickly because it's not actually a work of God. That, yeah, you can manipulate and yeah, you can imitate a work of God. But a true work of God, though manipulation may be there and though there may be imitation, can never be duplicated. That you can't contrive a true work of God. So what we see here is Paul saying, how do we recognize the difference? How is it that Paul says, I know that in the church of of the Thessalonians, that a true work of God has happened? He says, it's because I didn't just come not only in word, but in power. I have seen the transformative power of the gospel in the life of the church. Now, I think one of the ways that's helpful for us to understand that is to see that this comes from two different perspectives. First, from Paul's mind, there is what I would call the God perspective or the heavenly perspective. It's how things look from God, how, th- how God actualizes these changes, these, these happenings of his power in and among regular old people like, like you and me. You'll notice there that power and Holy Spirit are used there in a series. In other words, they're used as synonymous, ter- synonymous terms. So when Paul says power, at the same time he is understanding that that is the power that is exerted by the Holy Spirit. A power that is applied by the Holy Spirit. A power that is brought into knowing by the Holy Spirit. That this isn't just some nebulous thing floating out there, just some kind of mysticism. This is a real person, the Holy Spirit, that actualizes. In other words, this is God at work on us. At God at work in us. How can we know that? Look at verse 3. I want you to notice. I want you to look. There's a series here. And I want you to notice the last word of each series. Okay, so he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Now look, a lot of people work, but not a lot of people work because of how much they love. A lot of people labor A lot of you labor every day in a job that you hate. A lot of people labor. You can labor yourself down to the nubs. But not very many people labor because of faith. A lot of people remain steadfast and persevere. and They white knuckle their way through life. But not many people do it because of hope. 
that what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit exerts the power of God on your life, how does the Holy Spirit work? The primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to make them holy. In other words, it is an inward, outward transformation that he so transforms your heart and he so transforms your nature to give you a new heart and a new nature as a regenerate regenerate son or daughter of the living God that you begin to love what God loves. You begin to want what God wants. You begin to believe what God has said. Your hope becomes substantiated. Your labor and your work don't become just this begrudging duty that I have to do or I'm going to be shamed because I don't do it or I'm going to feel guilty. because It's because I love God. God. It's because I love the glory of God, because I love to advance God. It's the transformation of the person from the inside out. You see, you can't duplicate that. I could guilt you into working, but I couldn't guilt you into loving. I could, I could shame you into holding on and, and holding the rope, but I can't shame you into having genuine hope. I could, I could come and with hype get everybody all excited and in a, in a rouse that would quickly fizzle away. But I couldn't come with hype and create faith. That's the power of God that does that. That's the power of God that does that. And that's the difference between those imitations and the real thing. That's the difference between the imitation God movements and the actual God movements. The actual God movements are an inward transformation with the exertion of the power of God. And that's what I've seen in you. God's power exerted, and then we've seen God's power experienced. So this is the second perspective. So you have that, that God, God's perspective. From God's perspective, how does he get us to do so much? He changes our nature. God does it. He transforms our heart. He changes our motives. He changes our aspirations. He recalibrates and resets our values. But from our perspective, from the second perspective, from the perspective of earth, what does it look like? We'll go back and look at the first word in those series. It's not just faith, love, and hope. It's work of faith. It's a labor of love. In other words, from our perspective, y'all, it still feels like work. It still looks like work. I think sometimes we can over-idealize this and think, well, I mean, if I go serve in the nursery, it's going to be all unicorns and rainbows all the time. I'm going to go home with a great sense of self-fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose, and I really just go home and have to scrub the urine out of my new shoes, right? From the perspective of us, it looks like it looks like work, and it feels like work. He goes again, steadfastness. There is the same. We can do the same thing. Like sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm holding. I'm like, Lord, like I know you've called me, but I don't know. I want to be here right now. You know, like I'm just ready to go home for a while. From from our perspective, it's hard. But but notice, there's another word that's synonymous with power. So power is synonymous with Holy Spirit, and power is synonymous with full conviction. That's that earthly perspective. In other words, full conviction is often, it's only, this word only shows up four times in the New Testament. The other three times, it's translated as assurance. Assurance. And in other words, how are they able to work so hard from their perspective? Because they're so well rested in the finished work of Christ. Because they're assured that this isn't as good as it gets. Because they're assured that whatever they sow here, they will reap in eternity. Because they are sure that even though they are in great affliction and suffering right now, that one day their affliction is going to turn to glory. 
How is it they are able to be steadfast? Because they have the assurance. Their hope is not some pipe dream. It's not some fly by night. They have assurance that Jesus has raised from the dead. They have assurance that Jesus is going to return for them. And so they hold steadfast because they are assured that Jesus is going to come back and get them. That the dead in Christ will rise first. They are assured of it. They have full conviction. And so they're able to press on. And they're able to experience, even though they're working hard, they're well rested in Christ. Even though they're having to be steadfast and they may feel themselves beginning to waver waver and wobble as people do. They have the assurance that their hope is secure and that the Lord will hold them fast and that nothing, no one, nothing, no power, no principality, seen or unseen, will be able to pluck them from the hand of their heavenly Father. It's not about their strength, in other words. It's not about the quality of their faith. It is about the object of their faith. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. See, I remember, uh, my, I think it was either my first Wednesday night I was leading here. Used to be back in, back in the old days, if I can say that. We did uh, Wednesday night, and I, I kind of taught everybody. And I remember it was either, one of, it was one of my first Wednesday nights. I don't know if it was the very first, but it was one of my first Wednesday nights. And I kind of made what at the time felt like an offhanded comment that really drew a lot more questions than what I was expecting. You know, you, nobody listens to the youth pastor. I'd been a youth pastor previously, and so I said things all the time, and nobody cared. Like, you know, all of a sudden when you're the lead pastor, people got questions. You know what I mean? People, have, they want to know what you're talking about. And, and, and so I said something in, in the um, lesson that night. I said, you know, I'm never going to guilt you to give anything. If you ever have to give out of guilt, I don't ever want you to give a dollar. If you have to work out of guilt, I don't want you to work. I, I, I would rather find, because I said this, that what we're going to do is we're not going to be driven by guilt. We're going to be driven by grace. We're not going to be driven by guilt. We're going to be driven by grace. Most of us grew up in a form of Christianity that was leveraged with shame and guilt and fear to do whatever it is that we needed to do in the kingdom of God. And, and, and I'm convinced that that is lazy, inadequate, approach to the Christian leadership, that that guilt burns out, guilt burns out, guilt fizzles away, shame fizzles out, those three realities, guilt, shame, and fear only exist in the world because sin exists in the world, and we in the church ought to be motivated by that which is apart, that is just greater and above all those things that are in the world because of fallenness and sin, and so I remember people asking me, like, what does that even mean? And I remember thinking, I don't even know if I know. You know, I, I, th- I know this is right. I know this is sure. But, but for me, I didn't even know if it was just some idealistic pipe dream. But what I was convinced of, what I was convinced of was that grace could sustain faithfulness in a way that guilt never can. That grace can sustain faithfulness in a way that guilt never can. You know, someone can shame you and they can compel you to go and to work hard. Someone with a church or a pastor with great hype can excite you and energize you, something that will fizzle away quickly. But grace, grace is something that is in you. It is the power of God at work with you. And grace, grace will carry you when you can't go another step. Grace will enable you to press on when you want to give up a long time ago. Grace will fill you with passion when your passion ought to fizzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame burns out. Hype fades away. But grace, grace endures. And grace and passion and grace carries us forward. Man, I think about the works of here. And, and 
forgive me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name drop just because I want to, okay? And I could probably go every person, every row. I just can't, I don't have the time to do that. But as I think about this, as I think about the power of God on display among the people of God this morning, I think about Anne Howard and, and Vivian Brown who worked their finger to the bone making sure that people are looked after. And as a matter of fact, they have an old army of ladies that are doing the very same thing to make sure that, that people who have had a loss have meals to eat, to make sure that people are, are being cared for and that nobody's fault, that, that houses get cleaned, that can't be cleaned otherwise. They're, they're just working their fingers to the bone. I think about John and Keith Smiten every week going and serving the homeless ministry in, in West Anniston here locally and just high, high ministry drive in the Smiten family. It's not driven by guilt. Guilt can't get you up that much. Guilt can't take you that far. It's passion and it's love. It's the power of God, man. I think about John Hall and Sharon Mellon going to the youth detention centers and proclaiming the gospel and loving those kids and ministering to those that everybody else forgets about or no one else is comfortable around. And they go and they love on them and they care for them every single week. Man, that is the power of God. Most of us don't even know that they do. Many of us don't even volunteer to go with them because it's something that is in them. It is a call that God has placed on their life. It is the power of God, man. Guilt can't take Take you that many years for that long to do that great and that hard and tedious of a work. It is the grace of God that is carrying. I think about a conversation that Brittany Cofield had with John just a few weeks ago. Brittany's one of our nursery leads. And those ladies are saints, man. Let me tell you, those ladies are saints. And they're in there. And if there's any ministry that you're just prone to feel like, maybe just kind of just grin and bear it, endure it. It'd be the nursery ministry. But she said she taught this Bible lesson about David and Goliath. And the kids all came back the next week telling her the story. And she said she saw the light bulb go off. And she saw the potential for those kids that had the gospel truth sown into their hearts. And she was emotional. She said, I think this is the calling of my life to work. Y'all, that is God's power at work. That is God's power at work. When you are filled with the passion for nursery ministry, that is the power of God at work. We're going to take some bold steps in the years ahead. And in the years ahead, we're going to have to have the power of God. We're going to have to be totally dependent upon the power of God to be supplied, to come through, to be able to take on this bold initiative of the second quarter. But whenever we doubt, whenever we're unsure, all we have to do is look back and look around. And when we look back and look around, we will see a a complete trophy case of the miraculous divine power of God that has been exerted and experienced by us here at Iron City. Oh, I'm so thankful for you. And I'm thankful for you because you are demonstrations of the power of God. The second anchor point is that because you are an example of God's goodness. You are an example of God's goodness. You know, in in the postmodern world, people have kind of come to the realization that science just doesn't have all the answers that we're looking for. That science and, and uh, these cold processes still, we can know and have as much data and empirical evidence as we want, and it's still, there are things that we are still just left wanting. And so there's been this circle back to this, this understanding that I, I need something to deal with the transcendent realities of life. There's been this div- diversion back to the metaphysical 
So what happens is, is that if more people that believe that there is a powerful God or there's a force or there's some thing out there in the ethereal world or the universe that works, something that's bigger and greater than me that is mightier and power, more powerful, but there's greater difficulty with the goodness of God than there is with the power of God. That what you have is people that they believe that there is a great power out there, but they don't believe that he's very good. Or they don't believe that he loves them. Or they don't believe that he's knowable and personable. They, they don't know that he came and he lived as one of us and he dwelt right here among us. They don't know that he came and gave up his only son and laid down his life. That all, they don't know all of that, man. And again, that's where the church is supposed to step, step up. That just like we are supposed to be demonstrations of the power of God to one another and in our community, we are supposed to be exemplars of the faith, of the goodness of God. That we are supposed to be an outpost where the goodness of God is put on display like a city on a hill. Unfortunately, because of sex abuse scandals and because of money-hungry preachers, all of that has been diluted and polluted over time and people are skeptical. But for the people that are just ordinary folks, the ones that I know, the people that are here in Iron City and, and brothers and sisters that are all across this glove, some of them are meeting under a, three wall, a, th- a, a three-walled chapel in Africa right now. Those aren't, that, isn't display, that isn't an explanation for them. They are demonstrations, displays, examples of the goodness of God. That's certainly been my experience. That's certainly been my experience. While I've been here, Many of you know, six years ago, I refer to these things, and I forget that there's a lot of you that are new. Six years ago, I came within 24 hours of dying. I had to have emergency surgery and had to be cared for, and I had to have two different stints in the hospital at that point. And do you know who stepped up to the plate when that took place? I had, when I had to go back to the second night of the hospital, Megan and I were, were terrified. It was, a, it was a Saturday night. And I thought that next day was going to be my first Sunday back in church after, after my previous sur- surgery. And all of a sudden, I began running, running a temperature. I started having abdominal pain again. It looked pretty grim, and we didn't know what to do. And it was in the middle of the night, and yet Tony and Robin Snyder came over, and they sat with our kids at the call, at a last-minute call in our living room so that I could drive to UAB and go to the emergency room. That's, that's the goodness of God. I came back, I, I couldn't take care of myself, I was in a very feeble state, and, I, I, and Megan had PTO. It, again, I, I wasn't even able to get up out of the chair by myself, and Betty Duncan, she came and she sat in my living room, and she treated me with dignity, and I felt like I had no dignity at the moment, I felt like I was a drain on everybody, and she was so kind and so loving and so good to me, she took care of me. During that whole time, you didn't let me wonder. I've had two different stints in the hospital where I've had to stay at least a month out of the pulpit, one time for seven weeks out of the pulpit, and not a single time did I ever wonder whether or not I was going to have a paycheck to come home to. You made sure of that. You, you didn't even let me ask the question. You were good to me, man. You were, you've been good to my family. My kids love coming to church. My wife loves coming to church. Ministry is hard on a pastor's family, but you have been good to mine. My kids love you. They're excited to see you. You're not hard on them. You don't hold them to unrealistic standards. You let them come and break stuff and be kids and ask all the questions. Like, you, you let them, man. And you stayed with me. You stayed with me. I'm so thankful for all of you that are new. I, I, I think it's a really high percentage has been here five years or less. I, I know but for those of you that have been with me 
through all of the growing pains, all of the bad decisions that I've made, and the immaturity, especially those early days. And you've just stayed with me. I want you to hear from the bottom of my heart, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. And I'll, I'll, I will tell the story of your goodness to me for the rest of my life and the rest of my ministry and to any person that is willing to listen to me. Thank you. Thank you. But it wasn't your goodness. It was God's goodness being displayed by you. It was God's goodness being put on demonstration as an example to say this is what God is actually like. He's not like the beatdown that you get in the world every day. He's not like the bully that you face at school every day. He's not like the abusive dad that you had back in the day. He's not like any of those things. When we come in here, we see to one another this. This is who God is. This is his mercy and this is his grace and this is his staying power and this is his, his forgiveness. This is who God is. So the reason that this has happened in us is because of what God's word has done in you. What God's word has done in you. You know, uh, Paul keeps making this point. He's belaboring this point. We just saw in verse 5 how he says, this is how you know a true work of God is that it wasn't, I didn't just come in word. He came in power. In other words, you receive the word in a way that the word made a difference in your life. He continues on in verse 6 and he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word, even though there was much affliction. And you even did it with joy that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, he revisits this again. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception. You see the receive, reception. What did they, when they received the apostles, what were they receiving? What's he talking about? The message of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, the gospel of the apostles. That what he's looking at, the church... He's saying, what I'm so thankful for is how God's word has been at work in you. You see, the word is all a preacher really has. That's all charisma, sure, that can draw a crowd. Humor, that's fine. I like to be, I like, I like a good joke from time to time and to laugh with y'all. Personality, those things are fine, but none of those things can save a person. None of those things can accomplish the power of God. None of those things can actually transform the inner person and the inner man and the inner woman. None of those things matter. The only thing that a pastor has is the word of God filled with the spirit of God to bring transformation into the people of God. That's it. And so the way that you identify a true work of God is their reception to the word of God. You are a good place to preach every week, man. I love preaching the Bible right here because people come up and y'all don't ask little lightweight questions. I get asked about the text and the, you know, like Ross Williams corrected my Greek one time. I mean, that's impressive, man. Like, y'all are serious about the Bible, but the Bible has gotten in you and the Bible has begun to transform you. And that's what he says about them. He says that because you've received the word, you've begun to imitate us. That what they saw is they saw the, the disciples, uh, the apostles, and the apostles were, were being persecuted, and the apostles were under affliction, but they carried on with the banner, banner of the gospel. And so they said, we're going to do the same thing. Yeah, we're being persecuted, and yeah, there's affliction, and this is hard on us, but we're going to carry on like the apostles did. We're going to be imitators of them. They saw the apostles going and, and being willing to, to lay down their resources, their time, their money, all of the things that they had to offer, the energy, their life, their very own lives that the gospel would go forward. And they said, we're going to do the very same thing. We're going to lay down our lives. We're going to take our resources. We're going to take our time. We're going to take our energy. We're going to take our money. We're going to lay all of it down because we know that the example that the apostles have set as they have taught us is the true example of biblical Christianity. And we're going to press on forward as God would have us to go. 
See, again, what we're talking here, their imitation was rooted in a transformation. I love this. In verses 9 and 10, Paul really tells the testimony of the church at Thessalonica. And he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned, that's past tense, they, they were worshiping graven images and idols, but they turned away from those things of the past. And now we're in the present to serve the living and true God. Today, what are they doing? Having turned, they're still turned toward God. They're still pursuing God today. And then he moves to future and to wait for his son from heaven. And they're going to keep pressing on until the return of Christ. By the way, brothers and sisters, this is what salvation looks like. This is what salvation looks like. And I ask you this morning, have you experienced this? Where there was a turn away from your past life toward a countenance toward God. Where there was a passion and a fire in your bones to lay down your life for the living and true God. As you await, as you await the glorious return of our Savior that you might be united with Him in glory. Has that happened for you? It's it's not fire insurance, man. It's a transformation of the heart. It's a new nature, a new heart that is now enlivened by the glory of God. And so he says that God's work has been at work in them in the past. It is at work in them in the present. And it will continue to work in them to press them on into the future. But the way he understands it, and this is beautiful, is that when God's word works in you, then God's word works through you. When God's word works in you, then God's word works through you. This is our vision at Iron City. Our vision is to make maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. Maturing disciples are those that God's word is at work in them. Multiplying disciples are those that God's work is at work through them. That other people are able to see the goodness of God and the power of God at work through what God is doing in you right now. Look at how he, the, the, the pattern that it set, he sets up there in verse 7. So first there's imitation. He says, you became imitators, verse 6. But then verse 7, he says, then you became, there's that word again, an example. That imitation of the apostles turned into an incarnation of what they taught. In other words, they put hands and feet on the, feet on the gospel. They, they put hands and feet on what love actually was. They actualized the message of the gospel so that they incarnated the very nature of the kingdom in the way that they lived. And then he keeps going. Verse 8. So they were imitators, and then they were incarnators. Okay, now verse 8. For now only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith is gone, has gone forth, you see that, forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So imitation led to incarnation, and then incarnation led to reverberation. Sound forth there? The, the picture, it's a musical term. The idea is you have a gong, and somebody goes, and they hit, they hit the gong. And you know how the gong goes, you know, like, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? It does that, right? So you have ground zero at the gong, and then you have the shock waves as it makes its way across the, the audience. So that's what the gospel has done. That they, their church, their own hearts is, the, is ground zero for the great work of the goodness of God and the power of God in them. And as it has shaken them to their, their pores, it has gone forth and has reverberated to their neighbors and it has reverberated to their family and it has reverberated he says even everywhere the entire known world all of the roman empire that's what it's supposed to look like brothers and sisters when i was first coming 
I, I was, my Bible reading, as I began to talk with the pastor search team, I was at Exodus chapter 33. And, and you'll remember that in Exodus chapter 33, you have that really famous scene where Moses has come down from the top of Mount Sinai, and there he finds everybody, and they're worshiping the, the golden calf, and he smashes the, the tablets, and he goes, and he begins to intercede on behalf of Israel. And God says this to, to Moses, he says, I'll let you go into the promised land, but my presence will not go with you. And do you remember what Moses prayed? God, if your presence will not go with me, do not take me up from here. I would rather be right here in the desert with you than in the richest promised land without you. Iron City was for me a bit of a promised land. I wanted to make sure, I was so worried that I was going to come here because it was just my ambition to come here. I was so worried I was going to come here because I love Iron City. I was so worried I was going to come here because it's home and because I, I love this community and I love where I'm from and I, I love the people. I, I was so worried and I began to pray day in, day out, Exodus 33, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not take me up from here. I, I wrote Exodus 33 on a rock and I would put it in my pocket and every time I'd reach in my, my hand in my pocket, I would fill that rock and I would pray that prayer, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not take me up from here. And it was my way of praying, God, what I want is I want to be a part of a church that is a demonstration of your power and an example of your goodness. And if we will not go with your power and with your goodness, I don't want to go at all. But look around, brothers and sisters. Look around at the kindness and the goodness of God. When I came 10 years ago, our church had just went through a split. It was a difficult time in the life of our church. Attendance over a three-year period had declined by 150 on average. We were $200,000 below budget on giving, okay? And all of those numbers, we, we know numbers don't give the story, but those numbers say something, don't they? And we've changed basically everything. We got a new preaching style, a new worship style. That's enough to get you fired most places. We've changed the, the philosophy of ministry from being event and attractionally driven to being discipleship driven. All we do every week is just open the Bible and say, okay, we're in First Chronicles this week. We've changed the way we relate to teenagers and, and children. We've initiated a family equipping model to be able to go and be able to partner with parents. It's not about flash and fluff. Nobody comes here because of the great charisma of the preacher or, the, or the, the skinny jeans on the worship guy. Or maybe they do, I don't know. These things just come right out. They come because God is at work here. Last spring, we grew by 100 between the last week of January and the first week of February. And it's something that we've sustained for a year. God is at work. We had one saved at winter camp last week. God is at work. Our church is unified. God is at work. We aren't gossiping and bickering. And you come to one of our, we had, I, 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 I had somebody come and sit in my office the other day and said, we want to be members because we came to your business meeting. Y'all think about that for a second. They said, y'all like each other. Y'all didn't yell about the carpet color. We're in. God is at work, man. God is at work. Our community is filled with problems that only Jesus can fix. 
We are filled with adolescent anxiety and depression. We are filled with despair and divorce. We are filled with greed and materialism. We are filled with people that are trying to plug the vacuum of their souls with all of the fluff of this world, and they're starving to death. The Word of God has been at work in us. Look around and you can see, but the Word of God must work through us now as we go into the second quarter. We've got a lot of work yet to come. We've got a lot of opportunity yet to come. Brothers and sisters, let's come together. Look to the power of God. Look to the goodness of God and say, we're going to be an outpost of those realities right here for generations to come forward. Here's how I want to frame it up for us. Four quarters. The first quarter was foundation. It was about having the right culture. Moving from guilt to grace. Moving from fluff to substance. Moving from hype to Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm here to tell you, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the foundation of our church is strong. If, if you're coming and this is your first Sunday, man, I know that you're kind of like drinking from the fire hose today. You stepped into a church that loves each other. We're not perfect, but we are joyful. And we are serious about Jesus and not about ourselves. I hope, I hope you'll keep coming. I, I, I'm convinced that coming, looking back on the first quarter, we're, we're, we're in a healthy place. Second quarter, I see that as a time of expansion, a time of pursuing bold strategic initiatives for substantial kingdom growth, the time in which we say we have the answer, Christ, for what is ailing our community throughout the Chiha Valley, what is ailing the world to the ends of the earth, that we have the word of God and the gospel of the apostles that can be carried forward from us, and that this is a time in which we will expand our efforts and expand our ministries and expand our horizons, that we can advance the gospel to the next generation. The third quarter, innovation. That's where we're going to fix all the stuff we mess up in the second quarter. You know, innovation, that's what you, you create when you're starting from nothing. Innovation is when you already have something, you want to make it better. So the third quarter is going to be about us taking the, the systems and the processes and all that God has done and, and, and honing it in so that we can have the, the soundest and most healthy church possible so that we can clean up all the messes that we make by taking bold risk in the second quarter. And then the fourth quarter, succession. I want us to be really intentional about handing this thing off to the next generation. I want to make sure that we don't set up the next pastor and the next elder body to fail. I want to make sure that the kids that are in the nursery have a church that is worth having. And that they've been discipled well enough to be able to lead it. That we can hand it over. This morning what I want to do, I want to close our time together by reading to you the dream. If you've come through the, through the Connect Lunch recently, you've heard this. But after I recognized that God was calling me to Iron City, before my first Sunday here, I sat down and I wrote a dream about what I prayed that God would do at Iron City. And as you hear this, I want you to think of two things. I'm not saying these words are inerrant, they're not. But I want you to think about how much of this God has brought to fruition already. How much of this God is our, I want to fill you with praise and thankfulness because only the power of God and only the goodness of God could have brought it about. And then I want you to hear how much of it is left undone and how much work, work there still is for us to do. And then Andrew's gonna come, he's gonna lead us and he's gonna lead us in a song of thanksgiving. Maybe you wanna come and you wanna pray for the next quarter. That, that, that's fine, that's perfectly acceptable. But the main response that I want you to have to the message today is I want you to lift up your voice in thanksgiving to God that he has shown us his power and his goodness among us. Our dream is big because our God is big. 
Our dream is not exaggerated because our God cannot be exaggerated. Our dream is possible because with our God, nothing is impossible. We dream of seeing every lost soul being found, that people of every age and every generation and every race would experience the perfect love of our Heavenly Father and the abundant love that is life that is found in Christ. We dream of the baptismal water stirring every week with the testimony of a sinner who's been washed clean and a church family that loves and disciples them for the rest of their lives. We dream of becoming a refuge for those who have been wounded, damaged, and discarded. We want to show them the same perfect love, patience, and understanding that our Heavenly Father has shown us. We want to connect them to a true family of believers that will pray for them, live life with them, and bear their burdens. Our dream sees wounded lives being healed, dead hearts being made new, and helping every person uncover God's image in them. We dream of equipping all believers to enjoy an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to enable each believer to discover God's personal design for them and provide environments and avenues for them to express, develop, and multiply those gifts for the kingdom of God. We dream of them delighting in spiritual disciplines and thriving accountable relationships so that each person will grow in maturity and godliness. We dream of raising up a generation of worshipers who worship both in spirit and in truth. They will not worship God with their lips and ignore Him with their lives. They will not condemn their generation or shame their God with silence. They will be living sacrifices, giving themselves in word and action as an offering of worship to the slain Lamb who was worthy. We dream of investing the word of God in the hearts of all peoples and seeing them reinvest that truth into the lives of everyone they know. We dream of seeing all schools, workplaces, and homes becoming teaching centers for the word of God and temples of praise by the courageous witness of God's people. We dream of parents discipling their children, fathers leading their homes and churches, and families reaching other families. We dream of an intergenerational church family that demonstrates the gospel's obstacle, obliterating power by the way each person loves and invests in one another. We dream of influencing not just the current generation, but every generation that follows. We will take responsibility for our church and our community for such a time as this. We dream of God, by His grace, raising up pastors, missionaries, and leaders from within our fellowship. We dream of being a church family that God uses to shape the nations from every corner of Calhoun and Cleveland County to the very edges of creation. We dream of sending out reckless disciples who live as willing martyrs and work as joyful slaves to the calling of God. Our dream is our expected and hoped for reality. It is the focus of our prayers and the craving of our souls. Our dream is too big for us, but together with God, it can be realized. May our dreams be God's will. And may God's will be greater than our dreams. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.